0: Welcome to What's Working in Washington on FederalNewsRadio.com and 1500
1: AM. Hi, I'm Jonathan Aberman. Coming up on today's show. Go out, talk to as many people as possible. Believe nobody, because everybody has an opinion, and experts especially have only one opinion.
2: In my case, I actually find it to be perhaps a little beneficial in that it makes me unique, it makes me stand out, it makes me memorable. Um, I tend to think, pretty selfishly perhaps, that people tend to be drawn toward black women.
3: I think when people look back at this decade, I think what we're going to find is that lifestyle has finally become a key ingredient in everybody's sort of decision process.
0: Hi, I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for joining us in today's show. Entrepreneurship can be taught, that is a message of our first guest, Oliver Schlacke, who is a professor at University of Maryland, Smith School of Business. He's an entrepreneur himself. Lots to share. Amani Green will share her experience growing her company, Green Group, into an advertising and communications powerhouse here in the D.C. region. And Paul Singh is a name that many people in the technology industry know. He's a venture capitalist. He's doing some very interesting things around the country, bringing venture to places that currently don't have it, with some strong lessons to be learned for the D.C. region. That's what we have for you in this week's show. Many people confuse innovation with execution. Our next guest is Oliver Schlacke. He's a clinical professor of innovation entrepreneurship at the Smith School of Business here at University of Maryland. Oliver, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm often struck by how many people run at the shiny penny of innovation and have no earthly clue about how to execute a business. What are you finding out there in the world right now?
1: Well, I I think the... Innovation part is very much influenced what we see on the west coast, and we all all thinking this is what we have to do here in in the town. I think we need to we need to find our own version of what innovation means for for the region. We we're not about the latest tech all the time. Innovation in, in some parts also means to uh, evolve certain businesses not always the revolutionary makeover of something
0: and i think that's interesting and an important key point for us to go from so for example drones drones are innovation but on their own drones aren't a business right give me how would you how would you answer the question or give an example of how Drones are innovation, but using drones in a certain way becomes execution in a business.
1: I just um, spoke at the NACS, the National Association for Convenience Store Executives, and the discussion was all over uh, delivery drones as as a new idea. And people are seeing now that 7-Eleven is using delivery drones. Uh, Amazon is want to do that. And I told them, for a convenience store owner, if it's not a large chain, it makes absolutely no sense to use a drone as a technology object to deliver a pack of chewing gum to somebody who lives two miles away,
0: two miles because you'd have to have a, a big drone fleet.
1: Yeah, it right. has a big fleet, and and you'd never recover the cost of the, of that. Yes, you you are high tech, but there's no business model to that, and so. So how
0: do you solve that problem? Well,
1: I told them that the future of that is a pickup drone. You know, it's it's the errant drone that you own at your house. You know, we will see. Uh, my prediction is in in five to ten years, you will sell a house with a Tesla charger as a special feature and a drone port on top that allows you to pick up stuff within a two to three mile radius. You know, these drones can carry now up to three, four pounds that these uh, devices can help you pick up your dry cleaning and and pick up small items.
0: I've had people tell me that this way of thinking about customers is something that they call designed thinking. Do you fall into that
1: in that camp? This is nothing new. We've done this for 10 years. Somebody found a sexy word now for that. And uh, it gets people's attention. And that's why I love it. But at the same time, as a practitioner in this field, it's nothing new if you've been in that, in that industry. But I'm happy that it gets people's attention, that innovation becomes something we need to look at. a cut. Because what does customer-centric mean? It means I'm looking at a business model that can be executed where somebody is recognizing the value of what I'm doing. I produce something that costs me less, so I'm more competitive in the market space. So innovation goes both ways. I can use innovation to cut costs. In, in an enormous amount of ways uh, it doesn't get enough press uh, but that's the part where a lot of companies uh, should get really excited on and by the way that type of cost innovation attracts the whole different part of people because there are different types of people getting involved in innovation the people who like the revolutionary art of of innovating right this new newest gadget and it's an exciting new toy. Uh, but there are a lot of people that are not involved usually, but they get excited because they have a talent to evolve p- things. You know, they make something a little bit better and it cuts down 5% of the production cost or they deliver something more accurately or things are more on time.
0: But ultimately, what you're getting at, I think, is that innovation on its own is an idea, but innovation that actually causes somebody to have a benefit is actually meaningful.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, it, it, you know, the benefit is it's a multiple way. Multiple ways, you know, on the, on the fancy side, on the, on the excitement part where you can create a differentiated product that people like to spend more money on. You know, the iPhone, the classic example that we always use. It's a differentiated product. Uh, your phone calls don't get better with that. You know, the content of your call doesn't get better. Uh, but then there's the excitement of uh, cutting costs on something or imp- improving the process of something and excites a different group of people.
0: Oliver, in the classroom, you've got many students in front of you over the course of a year. We're talking about this this product, this converting innovation to products. How do you actually get them the skills necessary to be able to accomplish this mission? It's an important one.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh, and it's not easy always because a lot of the students are driven by this rapid gains of, you know, we're getting public, we're becoming millionaires. And there's, there's a misconception, of course, in terms of speed. So the one thing I... I try to instill in them is kind of a grinding attitude that you need to bring to the play. This is not happening. The the, the early stages of entrepreneurship are really boring. Most people you talk to don't think your idea is great uh, just because they haven't spent as much time on this idea. And, uh, of course, there's the fear of failure that a lot of people don't like and especially young generation uh, likes to have an instant feedback and that's not often the case you sometimes work in the dark in the in the basements or in the garages so one of the things that i try to get them involved in is to get out with their ideas go out talk to as many people as possible believe nobody because everybody has an opinion and experts especially have only one opinion and hopefully find uh, one or two like-minded people. I see more and more of these ventures being done in small teams. This is for diversity of thought. It is also for the necessity of grinding every single day. And Not everybody is on the top of the game every day. And so if you create uh, smaller teams with uh, diverse skills, but a like-minded motivation for the business, this is one of the things in class we always stress. And if you if you find a, you know, if you start a software business and you are a software developer, try not to find another software developer to team up, and try not to find somebody who is just like you, because you're losing the opportunity to add skill set in the initial uh, group of people that you have. Uh, but the hardest part, I think, for, for the, there are two things that, that are difficult for, to understand, because our school system has set them up for a very rigorous and structured education. That means people expect to have a, a, a weekly feedback; they expect weekly homework, but entrepreneurship is totally unstructured. You don't have that. I teach a lot of classes that are considered unstructured, but they're purposely unstructured because the unstructuring of the class is very much like the real life. So one of my philosophies in teaching is I want to create for the students a Star Trek holiday that gets us as close to reality as possible, but we still don't get hurt. So we'll, we'll try to talk to real companies. We'll, we'll get inspired. We, we're working with companies who who uh, have ideas to solve, and, and, and we work on, on these ideas. But in the end, it's a student who needs to bring up the extra time. And this is one of the challenges. How much are you willing to do outside your regular time at college you know, to make this work? And, and this commitment is critical. This is not something you do during class time. The successful ones go out. They pitch at conferences. They are out on, on our Fridays when we when we have pitch events, when experts come in. You know, these things don't come by its own.
0: There you have it. Great hints from a man who knows. Oliver Schlock, a clinical professor of innovation entrepreneurship at the University of Maryland, Smith School of Business. Thanks for joining us, Oliver. Thank you. entrepreneurship and the power of brand making sure your message is clear and you speak proudly about what you're up to is something in the dc region we need to do better and it's also something that every business needs to do well our next guest is an expert in both of those things Amani green is founder of the green group an entrepreneur here in town growing her business in the greater washington region Amani, thanks for joining us
2: thank you for having me
0: well tell us a bit about green group and how it helps businesses and people do a better job of communicating what they're about
2: Green Group is an advertising consultancy. So I work with different brands um, that and help them figure out how to tell the story about themselves in a way that allows them to build uh, support and ideally make money.
0: Making money is a good thing. It does drive all of us. You didn't start out as an owner of your own business, but you took the entrepreneurial plunge. Why? Why put yourself up for such aggravation?
2: I know. I'm still thinking about the answer to that question. So I spent 20 years in great big ad agencies um, in New York and Washington D.C., and I learned an awful lot and picked a lot of things up along the way. And what I found ultimately was that I didn't have the ability to share all of those types of things while working for another agency. So I thought that um, creating uh, my own effort, my own entrepreneurial effort, would give me a better opportunity to do all the different kinds of things that I love, and establish my own sets of priorities and. Uh, God help me make my own money, and so far, so good. It's been uh, about four or five years now, and we're still surviving.
0: So people tend not to think of D.C. as being a place where advertising, uh, particularly private advertising, could have relevance, but yet there's a real industry here.
2: There's a real industry for advertising everywhere. At the end of the day, advertising complements everything with regard to a brand. It's the way that you make sure that your message gets told in exactly the same way that you prescribe it, because you're actually paying for it. So by contrast to public relations where you are, which is um, critical to, to, to movement forward, forward movement among any brand, PR generally gets people to say things about you in their tone and in their manner. And hopefully it's favorable. Advertising is controlled. If you can pay for it, you can have someone say exactly what you want them to say in the same tone and manner. You can give them your calls to action. uh, You can predict it and you can measure it very easily as well. Some of it anyway.
0: When you look at this region, having come here from, you are in New York, right? I am. So So you came down from New York. Do you feel that as somebody who specializes in creating a message, is DC doing a good job of talking about itself from the standpoint of an entrepreneurial place or a place for inclusive entrepreneurship? And what's your view?
2: Um, I think I don't think D.C. does a a good job of talking about itself as a as a hotbed for entrepreneurialism. There are very few um, uh, places here where they go to where where we can all go to talk to one another, to build opportunities off of um, one another. There are not a lot of incubators. There are some good ones, um, but there are not a lot of them. Um, I think what D.C. does a good job of is talking to uh, others about how good it is at, at public policy and it's sort of a foregone conclusion, and so that message continues to repeat itself. But what may not come up is how much, um, how much, uh, as a hotbed of both federal government and, and, and political international politics, you need individual people like me, um, like yourself, or like like h- hundreds of thousands of others who are in the region that specialize in things that can um, bring to uh, bring to bear an entrepreneurial mindset. And I think that's what's unique about being an entrepreneur. You can actually be an entrepreneur and work for someone. Once you're an entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur for life. It's just a function of having a mindset that allows for creativity and, and sort of go-getterness. Um, and, and DC has that in droves.
0: Before we came on the air, you and I were catching up about what the show is about. And I said, well, this show is about people that get things done. And you immediately responded. So why are you somebody who gets things done?
2: Entrepreneurial mindset. Again, I have after I've worked for again um, agencies, big ad agencies for twenty years. But as it turns out, I've always been an entrepreneur in my mind. I wake up at the crack of dawn. I usually wake up around four o'clock in the morning, um, and I work for about two to three hours. I have a child. I get him up and get him squared away, and then I work out, and then I come back and then work some more. um, I don't consider it anything other than the pursuit of the thing that I love the most, which is. Um, driving forward my advertising business. It's contributing to the to the advancement of the brands that I work for. Uh, it makes me happy. Um, and that, I think, is what helps you to have that entrepreneurial mindset. It's really tough to drive yourself um, forward into uh, for 10, 12, 15, 18 hours a day if you don't love what you do. And so I think having that um, that desire to... Commit yourself to that and also to make the decisions around it is the the mix of things that makes you a strong entrepreneur, whether you're working for someone or not.
0: When I was thinking about starting my first business, having been a corporate lawyer, uh, a business acquaintance of mine, one of the early guys, and investors in AOL, said, do you want to be uh, an entrepreneur because you want to be wealthy or because you want to have fun? What do you think I told him? Both. And he looked at me and he said, if you want to be an entrepreneur to make money, you better not be one. (laughs) Do you think that's true? Do you think that uh, entrepreneurship without being rich is enough to carry you through?
2: Um, I don't think it matters on a global level. I think it matters on an individual level. I think that you can absolutely, everyone has their own definition of rich and wealth uh, and and having had wealth. And um, I think at the end of the day, you have to decide what that number is for you that makes sense, that makes your life feel full and productive um, and, and you can then set that as a um, defining term for your own wealth. I do have more control over the money that I make. The harder I work, <laughs> the more I make, generally speaking, not all the time, but um, but when you look at it um, sort of in the rear view, that does tend to be the case. Uh, but I am having a tremendous amount of fun. I'm doing it on my own terms. Um, I uh, do it from where I want to do it and how I want to do it. And And I don't know what you could do in life that's much more fun than that.
0: We have had a number of guests on the show recently talking about the the impediments that women own businesses, minority owned businesses, that there are structural impediments. Uh, do you feel that DC is uh, an environment that helps people break through them, or or not? What could we be doing better here in a region? What do we do well?
2: Well, I think those are those, that's probably about nine questions in one. Now, from the standpoint of uh, there being a tough environment for women or for people of color or minority in any capacity. I think it's absolutely I mean, we're we're just like every place else to some degree in the United States and that we do have to tell our story differently. We do end up having to champion our own um, our own intentions more so than someone who doesn't fit into any of those categories. And you have to decide whether or not you want to do that and when that behooves you. Um, I, as a black woman, don't find um, that it is limiting to the degree that I can't move things forward. I keep using that term, but it's a real one. And it's a good one. Um, I don't find that to be an impediment to my ability to make money. I don't find it to be an ability, uh, impediment to my ability to um, get business or to keep business. In my case, I actually find it to be perhaps a little beneficial in that it makes me unique. It makes me stand out. It makes me memorable. Um, I tend to think pretty selfishly, perhaps, that people tend to be drawn toward Black women. Um, and in that capacity, the opportunity is mine to sort of capture their attention and to um, connect with them and connect with their organization, and connect with their brand or connect with, connect with their passion, and then figure out where to from there.
0: I think you also speak passionately and from a standpoint of power, and there's no substitute for confidence, is there?
2: Confidence um, coupled with ability and, um, and, and some stick-to-itiveness is probably the, you know, the three ingredients that you would need in order to, to, to uh, do well as an entrepreneur here.
0: So Amani, in addition to your your entrepreneurial business activities, you're also throwing your entrepreneurial passion at an interesting not-for-profit activity. Tell us a bit about that.
2: I have been a mentor for um, youth and in, in particular communities of color uh, my whole life. And about six or seven years ago, I decided to turn that into uh, a functioning nonprofit called Everyday Inspirations. Uh, it's a very simple sort of theory. In essence, I go to a place called St. Anne's and Maternity Home. I'm sure lots of Your listeners know of it. And I take someone every week who does something interesting, who has an interesting profession, path, or passion, and allow them to share that story with these young women. More often than not, these young women are uh, wards of the state. They are either pregnant or they have new kids, uh, new babies. They're generally between the ages of 13 and 18. And so what they may be lacking um, in their lives is inspiration something that allows them to know that a, pl- a path has been blazed in front of them and that anything that they want to do is, uh, is an option as long as they're not hindered by not knowing about it.
0: Well, Imani Green, thank you for taking some time to share your knowledge and experience. Imani is the founder of The Green Group. Thanks for taking the time
2: today, Thanks for Amani. having me.
0: Our next guest is a known entrepreneur and funder, Paul Singh. He is the founder of Results Junkies. And he has been doing something that many of us think about doing, which is go around the country and see what's going on. But 40,000 miles, and here we are, Paul.
3: Here we are, yeah. it's uh, We left, I think we, we moved into the trailer halftime last March, and here we are, like, I guess 15 months later, 40,000 miles later. What have you learned? Yeah, a lot. You know, I think, I mean, there's a lot of different angles I could take this, but I think, you know, with the, l- l- just putting on my blood-sucking capitalist hat for a moment, I think the reality is there are... Investment opportunities everywhere, and I think it's sort of um, I knew that going into it, but I think it's another thing entirely to go shake hands with somebody in Butte, Montana, or you know Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Albuquerque, New Mexico, and, and actually then write them a check. And so, so that's not I don't think groundbreaking and new and all that. I think people know that and 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 probably can see that for themselves when they travel. I think the the more interesting thing that I've sort of noticed over the last year um, that's affecting us uh, and how we operate our business now is that. Um, you know, I, I started looking when I started driving around, I started kind of with the idea of like, well, we're going to go find these venture scale companies, whatever that means. Um, but as we kind of drove around, we started to realize that like the the number one reason we were saying no to people on the investment side was because their model or their growth model didn't fit our sort of return expectations. And so, um, we slowly kind of figured out that, Hey, you know, maybe we should just change our economics to make those deals happen more, and so um now I think what we should kind of say is that we invest in two kinds of companies. The first is sort of the traditional venture scale company, somebody that can kind of potentially grow a company into ten, twenty or a hundred million dollars and maybe more who knows um but the the other type of business we invest in is these what we call main street businesses, and I call them main street mostly because I hate it when people call them lifestyle businesses um, but these main street businesses are. Um, you know, like for example, one company that just comes right, right to mind that, that we're sort of, uh, close to finishing up here on a deal is, uh, we are in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and, um, these guys built a code camp for kids after school. And like, that doesn't sound groundbreaking and new, but I still remember the pitch because these two guys walk into the building uh, or to the room I was in and they said, how is it possible that the local karate store or karate shop or whatever can, can have like a big yellow limo, a Hummer limo to pick up kids after school? Um, and build an entire business around that, and yet we have nothing like that for code schools. And so long story short, these guys don't even have any interest in building the next billion-dollar company, but they have a really interesting business model that has strong unit economics, and we're like, man, we can fund that.
0: What do you think it is about the venture capital model in the United States these days that that causes um, most of our tech press and most of our cycles to be chasing these unicorn-type companies?
3: Well, I think there's two things there. I think the first is we've sort of Hollywoodized startups. I think that's the first challenge. Uh, one of the top ranking shows on TV is Shark Tank, right? I mean, that just tells you like how much entrepreneurship is sort of in the zeitgeist these days. So that's that's sort of the first thing that sort of caused that. I think the other part of it, though, is, is that, um, and this is a little bit more nuanced, but you know, if you look at the way venture capitalists have been compensated for the last 100 years, well, the industry is probably only like 75 years, but anyway, they're compensated on something called carry and management fees. So the carry is the profits that the fund returns, if it returns any at all. Um, and then management fee is just the fee that they're paid to just hold the money. So um, if you want to Google this while you're listening, it's called the two and 20. Uh, that's you know, the slang term for it. That means that if you raise a $10 million fund, you're getting 2% of the management fees every year for usually about 10 years, and then you get 20% of the profits on top. So if you kind of just think about this for a moment, if you're paid as a percentage of the if, the if you're paid via management fee, your incentive is to raise a bigger and bigger fund. Right, and so uh, that's the underlying challenge: is that our fund sizes continue to get bigger, and then you know the return expectations skyrocket from there. Like, frankly, the only people that need unicorns are people with big funds.
0: Right, because they are the ones that have to take five hundred million dollars
3: and turn it into two billion. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, I I I know a lot of entrepreneurs that'd be fine just building a million dollar a year business. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and as you're going around the country. Uh, What's driving entrepreneurship in these towns where you know the company that employed people may be gone? And you know, there's so many towns around America where their young people have no reason to stay. Why is there entrepreneurship growing up in these places?
3: I, I think what's happening uh, all throughout the country right now is that the nature of work continues to change. Um, you know, I think that uh, for, for many people, like when they grew up, their their choices, you know, pre-internet, their choices in these small towns were to. You know, option one work for whatever the industry was in their town uh, option two work in a supporting industry in that town like restaurants or retail or construction and option three was to leave right and you know you got a finance degree cool, cool go to New York you know got a tech degree go to you know San Francisco steal go to Pittsburgh do whatever you want to do but I I think what's what's happening now is because the internet is sort of Ubiquitous across the planet now and and across the country, I think what we're seeing is that these these towns are realizing there is a fourth option, and I think more importantly, the people in those towns are realizing that there is a fourth option now. Um, And so, it's not necessarily that like I don't think more people are waking up today saying I'm an entrepreneur. I think there are people saying, Hey, you know, I have my accounting degree. Why am I just working for this one company in this local town when I could have, you know, four clients paying me? You know, for part-time services from all around the country, and so um, I think those are that that idea is probably something we take for granted here in D.C. Um, at least I know I did. Just kind of driving around, like I just thought, like, oh, everything must be just like here. But you know, I think I think when people look back at sort of this time in this country, I think what they're going to find is that you know, for a long time, you did have to leave to go do something. So so you know, it, wherever you were, like. You know, if you wanted to be in technology for a long time, you had to be in Silicon Valley, right? Or or Boston or whatever. And you could say that about a lot of different industries. I think when people look back at this decade, I think what we're going to find is that lifestyle has finally become a key ingredient in everybody's sort of decision process, right? So now if you really want to live in Sioux Falls, you can and you're not going to lose any sleep because you could raise money from anywhere if that's what you want to do. You can find customers from anywhere if that's what you want to do. And that's cool. And I think ultimately what that's going to do is put pressure on the venture industry to, to change. I mean, I think, you know, it's not that general partners at funds are bad people at all. I just think you have to look at the incentives, right? I think entrepreneurs, they tend to adapt very quickly to market changes. One other observation I'll just kind of say for better or for worse is that, you know, I think like when I first started flying around to travel to these places, you know, back in 2010, the, the overall sentiment everywhere else was, hey, we're just going to get the big VCs to come to our town and hang out here. That's what we're going to get them to do. Uh, here we are seven years later, and I think what's happened is the big VCs never did go to the small towns. In fact, it was just smaller VCs that popped up everywhere else. And you can just look at the SEC filings, right? 2010, you could count on probably one or two hands, the number of funds under $100 million in this country. And now if you look at the SEC filings, there's over six hundred. You've got $50 million funds in St. Louis, in, in Bozeman, Montana. You've got them in, in Detroit. You've got them in Ann Arbor. You've got them everywhere now. And so um, anyway, I think it's going to put pressure on our industry to change. What I tell my investor friends is that it's never been easier to get into venture. It's never been harder to stay in venture because <laughs> you've got to keep finding the returns. So for us, I think you know the, the, the reality is we're moving to smaller and smaller fund sizes now. And we're going into blended funds now. So, you know, 30% of our deals today are done on what we call these Main Street deals. And I don't know if that's exactly how it should be done, but I think that's directionally how our industry has to adapt. But what do I know? I live in a trailer half the time. so. <laughs>
0: but it's a nice trailer. <laughs> Paul Singh, we're very happy to have you here. It's always fun to follow you from the road on Results Junkies. And thanks for taking the time to join us thanks today. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for listening to what's working in washington a special thanks to our sponsor eagle bank how do you get to be number one in the dc area eagle bank did it by putting relationships first they're flexible involved responsive strong and trusted eagle bank's goal is your success our executive producer is tracy madigan our online contributors are michael hoffman barbara Ulrich, and candace pie Music provided by two D.C. region bands, two-car living room, and the Sunbathers. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening.